0: that gives you a little flavor of what that men's retreat is going to be like. And uh, yes, deodorant is a requirement. I promise you that. Well, hey, that like uh, Frank was saying, there's only uh, uh, 60 spots available, so it's going to be a great time. I know at Bear Hollow Ranch there's There's ATV riding, there's going to be fishing, there's skeet shooting, there's a lot of stuff out there to do, and just a great time of fellowship with men, we're going to be studying together. So I encourage you to sign up, don't wait, registration opened yesterday, and if that's something you fellows would like to be a part of, definitely do that. Also, before we go to the Word uh, today, I want to let you know that this is the week all of our life groups kick off, and, and I hope many of you were able to get into a life group. Um, out in the atrium, there are the life group questions. They're out on the atrium, uh, the, the, the life groups display out there just outside these doors. Feel free to grab one of these and take this with you. It's also on the app. You can also access it the same way. But uh, the whole idea is that you would take this and you would spend some time with it on your own and then go into your life group this week kind of ready to have this discussion. Your life group leader will, will lead you in. And, and also, if, if you were not able to get into a home life group, um, I want to encourage you to come Sunday night. It starts this evening. There's going to be some refreshments there. It is for anybody who wants to come. You don't have to sign up for it. You're not making some long commitment to it. But what's going to happen is whoever comes here this evening at 5 o'clock, you're going to be divided into essentially smaller groups about 10 to 12 people and you're going to spread out through the building here and you're going to be led through these same life group questions so you get to enjoy that same level discussion you're going to get to know some new people i know a lot of you have mentioned child care has been a little bit of an issue in getting involved in a life group well we have child care every sunday night available for you from birth through sixth grade and so you can take advantage of that opportunity. Still get to be a part of a life group environment, and I certainly want to encourage you to do that. For those of you that may not be participating at all in a life group, please feel free to take one of these. Do this as an individual study. Help you, you, know, help you grow and, and stay up with the whole church. Really, the whole idea is... I'm going to introduce subjects and teaching on Sunday mornings, and all of our life groups are going to be studying that out even further in their life groups each week. I believe there's a lot of alignment that happens within a church family when we are together studying the same things, praying about the same things. And so I hope all of you in some way or another will participate, whether on your own, on the Sunday Night Life group, or there's still time to get into a home life group, uh, one that meets in somebody's home, and and, uh, we still have plenty of groups that have openings. So that's for your information. I hope you will um, act accordingly and get plugged in. Well, we are beginning a brand new series today, but my hope and my goal is that it doesn't feel like a brand new series. I hope that this feels more like just a continuation of what we have really been studying about All year. I know not all of you were here with us at the beginning of the year, but the majority of you were. If you recall, we started the year off with studying what? The Gospel of John. How many remember that? We started in John's Gospel. That's the story of Jesus' birth, all throughout his life, his ministry, up to his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. That's the Gospel of John. We ended that series on Easter Sunday where we spent the whole morning focused on Resurrection Sunday and that was the very end of John's Gospel. The very next week we transitioned right into the book of Acts which is the story of the Holy Spirit being poured out onto the world in the beginning of the church. And, and my goal in doing that was to flow seamlessly from John's Gospel into the book of Acts where it feels like all we're doing is continuing the same story. I want you to know my goal for this new series that we're starting today is exactly the same. I hope that, you know, it's definitely going to be a new series, but I hope it feels like we're just flowing right out of Acts and what is the next logical part of the story of the church. Now, I hope you remember how the book of Acts ends. The last two verses, we have Paul, who's a prisoner under house arrest in Rome. You don't need to turn there, but let me remind you of what it says. Acts 28, verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And last week we asked the question, so what happened after that? Did he stand trial before Caesar? Did he get released? Was he put to death? Nobody is for certain exactly what happened to Paul next What we do know is this, though, is that Paul, over his lifetime, he traveled all over the place. And and he met lots of people. He won many people to Jesus Christ, started churches. Many of those people that he met on all of his journeys and during his life, they became good, close, personal friends of his. Some of them even joined him in his ministry, and they too risked their very lives for the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of them went on to become very influential, prominent leaders in the church. Now, we may not be able to say exactly, this is exactly what happened to Paul after he went to Rome and he was in prison there, but we definitely know that the story of the church continued on. How do we know this? Because here we are the church continued. It didn't end in Acts 28. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit continues to be poured out. People continue to come to faith and believe and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they become saved people. The church continues to go. So even though we don't know the exact end of Paul's story, we are the very continuation of the book of Acts. We do know that the Apostle Paul's legacy lives on throughout the generations. You may not know this, but the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Did you know that? 13. So his, you know, his work, his, his being used of God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through him has left a very long-lasting legacy. Now, when I think about the next natural phase in the life of the church, at least according to Scripture, what happened next? My mind takes me to a new person, and that person's name is Timothy. And if you were with us through the book of Acts, you might recall that Timothy's name came up quite often all throughout the latter half of the book of Acts. We first learn about Timothy in Acts chapter 16. We know that he is a Christian by the time we get to Acts chapter 16. We also know that uh, from other scriptures that uh, he was heavily influenced for the Lord from a godly mother and a godly grandmother. And, And as we read through scripture, it certainly seems apparent that Paul had a hand in Timothy becoming a Christian as well. Here's why we think that. If you were to go back two chapters to Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas travel to the city of Lystra. That is where Timothy is from. And they go there, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 14 that many people believed in that community. I think it's perfectly logical to say Timothy was probably one of those many people who believed. He already had influence from his family, and maybe Paul was the one that helped seal the deal. The church was started. Several years later, Paul comes through Lystra again on his second missionary journey, and that's where Timothy is named. We know he's a Christian already, and, and they talk very highly about him um, um, there in, in Lystra. Uh, it says in Acts chapter 16, verse one. You don't need to turn there. It's just some help you get introduced to this new uh, book we're going into. It says in verse one of, of Acts 16, that Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. Where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So he'd been a Christian long enough to get a pretty good reputation. This guy's a real deal. So whether Paul was directly involved in his conversion or not, by the time Paul interacts with him in Acts 16, they become good buddies. They become close. So much so that Timothy leaves his home and he joins Paul in this work of spreading the gospel. He goes with him. That's how connected he was to to Paul and the ministry. Now, what you see in Scripture is Paul and Timothy develop this very close relationship. You know how I told you that 13 of the New Testament books, at least, were written by Paul? Did you know that six out of those 13 books name Timothy in the introduction? Let me show you what I mean. If you were to go to Philippians 1.1, it starts like this. Paul and Timothy. Timothy. Servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Philippi was a city that Paul went to during his missionary journeys and started a church there. He later writes a letter to them. That's Philippians. Together with all the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Philippians starts. It names Timothy right in the introduction. It's like not just Paul, it's Paul and Timothy coming to you. Uh, Philippians starts that way, 2 Corinthians starts that way, First and 2 Thessalonians starts that way, Colossians starts that way, and the book of Philemon. All names Timothy um, along with Paul. Now, Paul, when he wrote the book of Philippians, um, most people believe that he did that. He even says, I'm in prison when I'm writing this. But most people believe he, he wrote that during his two-year house arrest in Rome. That's when he wrote Philippians. Some have suggested, well, maybe he wrote it when he was a prisoner in Caesarea. That's a possibility as well. But most people accept he wrote to the church in Philippi, in Philippi while he was a prisoner in Rome. Now, I want, you to know, I want you to hear how Paul talks about Timothy when he writes that letter. In, in the screens behind me, I'm going to take you to Philippians chapter 2. And this starts in verse 19. He says this. To these Christians in Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. In other words, Timothy's with me. I want to send him there so he can report back all the good things that are happening. And then he says this, next verse. I have no one else like him. That is a very high uh, word of praise for somebody coming from the Apostle Paul. I got nobody like him. He goes on to say, who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Do you understand this little detail that Paul is giving? This is how I feel about Timothy. He's like a son to me, and he sees me like a father. That's more than a friendship. That is a close relationship these guys are tight and i want you to understand this he says in verse 23 i hope therefore to send him as soon as i see how things go with me so it's they've got a good good relationship Well, as I told you before, nobody really knows for certain or can say for certain what exactly happened to Paul at the end of the book of Acts. But I have no problem telling you what my opinion is. I think we're all welcome to an opinion from time to time, right? Here's my opinion of what happened to Paul, and I reserve the right to be wrong. My opinion is that Paul was released from his house arrest in Rome at the end of those two years. I believe that he resumed his traveling and that he continued to preach and visit churches and I believe that it was during this time he wrote a few more books of the New Testament. And then later, he was arrested again. Now, the reason I believe that is because by the time you get to Second Timothy, it sounds so different about that imprisonment than his house arrest in Rome. It sure makes one at least wonder if this is a different imprisonment. That's all technical mumbo-jumbo, but that's my opinion. I believe that he was released. And maybe I'll get to heaven one day and find out I was completely wrong and that's okay, because when I get to heaven, I'm not going to care about that question. But I'm of the opinion that Paul was released. And, and it was during that time of his release that he either leaves Timothy or he sends Timothy to the city of Ephesus. And so Paul, or excuse me, Timothy arrives in Ephesus. Paul sends him there because there's a very specific mission for him to do, and he's got a, and that mission is this: You have to set that church straight a lot of things have gone wrong in Ephesus and Timothy your job is to get it back on the right path. So what I want you to understand is when you pick up the book of 1 Timothy to read it, Timothy and Paul are not together. And they're still very close, but Timothy is on a mission from Paul. He is there for a specific purpose. And so Timothy is alone. He is still, in that day and age, considered very young, and this is going to come out in the letter as well, and it's a very hard job that he has to do. I can't imagine a harder job, scripturally speaking, than what Timothy has to do in the city of Ephesus with that church there. And shortly after Timothy arrives in Ephesus, Paul sends him a letter of instructions. That's what 1 Timothy is. It's Paul's letter to Timothy with instructions of how he's supposed to lead and what the church is supposed to be like in the city of Ephesus. Now, there's also, it seems clear, that this letter was probably, or at least parts of it, read to the entire church. Most of Paul's writings are also shared with the entire congregation. They were meant to be read publicly, and I do believe 1 Timothy was also read to the church. But that's what you have in your lap right in front of you. Timothy the young leader in the city of Ephesus, very specific instructions from Paul, and that's what we get to read. So, if you got the first chapter open, let's go ahead and start at verse 1, and uh, we're just going to start to unpack this kind of verse by verse here today. It starts out like this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to know something. This is a very typical greeting that you read in the New Testament. As you open up other books of the New Testament, you're going to find the beginning of all of them very similar to this. Paul identifies himself as the author of this letter some have asked well how do we know that was the apostle paul well there's a lot of reasons we know it's the apostle paul one of those reasons is because all the names and things he references all go back to the book of acts and and the way he speaks about timothy in this letter it's like oh this has got to be the apostle paul there is always some liberal theologian that wants to debunk the scripture and they'll point to things going, well that couldn't possibly be paul and they'll try to make these arguments but friends i want you to know This is the Apostle Paul who wrote this. It's very clear evidence all throughout, in and outside of Scripture, what was accepted. This is the Apostle Paul. And he identifies himself at the beginning of this letter as an apostle, Now, not very many people had the title apostle. It was a very important and special designation back in this time. The apostle is simply a word that means messenger. He says, I'm a messenger of Jesus. And so he's basically writing this letter saying, I am an apostle. I am a messenger of Jesus. With that comes some authority. It's like he's saying, you need to listen to me. I am working on behalf of the Lord. I am a messenger of his. That's how that would have been understood. And he writes this letter. He addresses it to Timothy. Timothy is the recipient of this letter. And he says, my true son in the faith. There is this weight that comes with it that says, Timothy is there on my behalf he's my true son, he's like family to me, I'm an apostle, I'm sending you authoritative message, and you also need to listen to Timothy. It's almost like, as if I'm speaking through him, you need to pay attention. That's what some of this language is here in the very beginning. I don't think it's a far stretch, like I mentioned a moment ago, that Paul thinks the world of Timothy, and he sees him as a son. They're not blood, but they're family, and that's how he wants these Christians in Ephesus to treat him. I don't know. Do you guys have anybody in your life that you could say, we're not blood, but we're family? You got anybody like that? It's like, you know, we might as well be family. You know, he's my brother from another mother. Anybody got one of those? Okay. Uh, maybe your children have friends of theirs that all they do is hang out at your house all the time. And you kind of adopted them as your own. And you're like, hey, these are like all my kids. I think that's kind of the relationship here. That, there, there's just a, a closeness here. Now, as you keep reading, what I like about Paul, he doesn't waste any ink or paper. He cuts right to the point. This is it. Look at verse 3. Here's the reason I'm writing this to you. As I urged you when I, left, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Don't you like? Don't you appreciate? He just gets right to it. We don't got a chapter of fluff. That's why I love the Bible. There's very little fluff in there. It is just, this is it. Here's why I'm writing. Let's get to the point. He identifies for Timothy the biggest problem that's happening in the church at Ephesus. And that problem. Is false teachers, false teachers are are promoting things that are not true, and it's and it's and it's causing people to fall away and to move away and and to be all kinds of confused. It was a real problem, and we're going to unpack this here in a moment. But let me just give you a a little refresher on the backstory of this city of Ephesus that this is all taking place in. You might recall from our study through Acts, Acts chapter nineteen. Paul goes to uh, the city of Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he lives there for three years. This city is very special. to to Paul. And that's why I think there's so much interest in it and why he wants Timothy there because things have gone haywire. This is the city that was a, a very wealthy city. This is a major harbor city. They've got shipping lanes. They've got all kinds of stuff, access to people from all over the world. People used to come there from all over the world. Do you remember why it was a destination location? It's because many people wanted to come and see What was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Some of this coming back to you. The temple to Artemis was there. Also known as the temple to Diana. It was this massive structure that people would come from all over. This was Ephesus. It was about 300,000 people that lived there. Which was a huge city back in this day. And it was very hedonistic. It was full of idol worship and a lot of their worship centered around this false god named Diana who was the fertility god. You can read all about it in history. And, and how they, the men in that community expressed their worship to this false god of Diana, they would come to the temple where there would be hundreds of priestesses, which is a fancy word for temple prostitutes, and they would be intimate with those temple prostitutes, and that was the expression of their worship to Diana. This place is messed up, my friends. And this is where this little church that Paul started was trying to blossom. This is the same community, you might remember, that God did, you remember this word, extraordinary miracles through Paul? So much so where like handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched, people would take those and touch sick people with them and they become healed. That's extraordinary. This is also the same place where we read about the seven sons of Sceva. Do you remember those guys? They weren't Christians, but they saw Paul drive out demons and do miracles, and they wanted to do the same thing. And so these seven sons of Sceva, they found this demon-possessed man, and they came up to him, and they said, in the name of Jesus, you know, the guy that Paul talks about a lot, come out. And this demon looked at them and said, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but I don't know you. And that demon beat those seven guys to a bloody pulp. They ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's all, this is Ephesus, this is that community. This is the same place that we read in Acts chapter 19 where there was a silversmith by the name of Demetrius who did not like Paul at all. And he saw Paul as a threat to his personal business. Paul, because he's leading all these people to Christ and they don't want my little silver statues to Diana, he's going to cut into my profits. So he starts a riot. Thousands of people, they all move into the amphitheater, which the ruins are still there today. You You can walk through them. And there 's this huge riot, they want to kill Paul, they want to get rid of the church, and that marks the end of paul 's time in ephesus it 's that community that Timothy has gone to now to try to get this church that no doubt has come under some of the influences of their culture and, and, and has gone astray. Now I want to also bring to your attention to something too that just helped kind of backfill the context of Timothy. When Paul left Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he went ahead and continued on his, three, his third missionary journey. And it was during that third missionary journey that God said to Paul, I need you back in Jerusalem. And do you remember when Paul kept saying, I gotta get to Jerusalem. I gotta go to Jerusalem. And he gets on a ship and he hightails it back to Jerusalem. Well, his ship makes a stop a few miles away from the city of Ephesus. And he sends a messenger to go get the elders who he had spent years with and they travel out to the port where he's at so they can spend a couple hours together. And it's that conversation, do you recall, where they beg him, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem, it's just hardship, and, and Paul wouldn't listen. But right before he leaves, he says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says to these elders of Ephesus, he says, I know that after I leave, in other words, I'm going to get on this ship back here and I'm going to set sail for Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen when I leave. Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Nod your head if you know that's a strong warning. That's a strong warning. And now, as we open up the pages of 1 Timothy... We are most likely about five to eight years after Paul issues that warning to the elders of Ephesus, and here we are, five to eight years later in the book of 1 Timothy, and this warning about savage wolves coming into the church at Ephesus has what? It has come true. It's come true. False teachers from both inside the church and outside the church are tearing the church apart, and they're drawing Christians away. And that's why Paul needed Timothy in the city of Ephesus. That's why Paul is so strong. Timothy, you get in there and you command people to stop this. We're not going to take time to unpack that word command, but if you go back to the original Greek language, it is much stronger than our English word command. It holds this idea of a military general commanding his troops to stop. It has ordered, that's the strength of this word. And that's what Paul's like, listen, get in there. And you tell these people to stop. And you command them to stop teaching these false doctrines. Now, if you've been around New Life for very long, what I'm about to tell you next is probably not gonna be any shock to you at all. But I personally feel deeply connected and challenged and called to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse three through five. Paul's strong warning about pure doctrine. I just feel so deeply connected to it that when I see Christians or I see whole congregations or entire denominations, for that matter, chase after what is clearly a false teaching or or rally behind something that is completely contrary to Scripture, it grates against my spirit. And I hope it grates against your spirit too. There is a false teaching or you could call it a distortion of the truth, if you will, that is rapidly spreading through, uh, through the American church right now. And this false teaching simply says or sounds like this. Hey, God doesn't care who you love or how you love or who you marry or how you marry. God only cares that you love one another. That's all that matters to him. The gender that you express your love towards is of no concern to God at all. And any restriction or hesitation that is brought up in Scripture, well, that does not apply to Christians today. And the last thing that you should ever associate with this conversation is the word sin. That's a false teaching that is rapidly spreading through the American church today. Paul's charge to Timothy was, you command people, you command Christians to stop doing these things. These false doctrines, they were creating confusion. And guess what was being hindered in verse 4? What was being hindered was the advancement of God's work. He's like, that's what's happening. The evangelism of our city here in Ephesus that so desperately needs Jesus That has come to a screeching halt because of all these false doctrines that are being taught. If you go on to verse 5, it says this. The goal of this command, all right? So the command is what? You command them to stop doing this. And the goal of that order is love. Love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. There's some words in here that Paul uses. He says, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Friends, I think Paul's highlighting what the aim is of all Christians right there. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Is that not the aim of all Christ followers? It is. But he says some people in the church there at Ephesus, they have completely departed from this. Who are these some people? Well, they're the ones that are perpetuating these false teachings. They've turned away. And the implication of Paul's words here and later in the rest of Timothy and in the Titus and 2 Timothy is that these kinds of people are lost. They don't get it. They are on the opposite side of a good conscience and a sincere faith and a pure heart. So the command is, get in there and stop it. Now look at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So what Paul is doing here for us next is he's identifying what this false teaching is about. It has something to do with the law of Moses. Now, uh, for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to say it for us. The first five books of the Old Testament, that's where this False teaching was coming. It had something to do with that. It had something to do with the misuse of it, the misinterpretation, um, the misapplication of the law. It goes on to verse nine. He says this: We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers. So now he's saying, let me clarify what the law is for. Let me try to bring some clarity. To, to bring some sanity to what this mismessage message is. So, because we know that the law was not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary To sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So, this false teaching had something to do with the law of Moses. And, And he's saying, Timothy, let me just be clear with you. This is what the law is for, and this is what the law is not for. The purpose of the law, Timothy or Paul is saying, is to make people aware of sin. The law can't save anybody. This list of rules, it can't save. There's no saving power in a list of rules. That's not what the law was supposed to do. The law makes people aware of behaviors that God finds absolutely detestable. That's what the law is for. So obviously these false teachers were distorting the law. By trying to make it mean and to say some things that clearly was never intended to mean. And even Paul says, these people, they don't even know what they're talking about. They're just manipulating Scripture. To make it mean things that's never meant to mean to draw people away. Now friends, this is a very dangerous thing that I want you to know was, is not just an ancient problem. This right here that we're reading about in 1 Timothy 1, it is a modern day problem too. And there are some significant dangers that the Bible tells us about, warns us about false teaching. One of those dangers is this, false teaching, it leads to instability and confusion every time. False teaching just leads to instability and confusion. Now, let me take you back to the very first time this young church in the book of Acts encountered false teaching. We all take you back to Acts chapter 15, and you don't need to turn there. But uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're in the city of Antioch. Life is going good, and there's these guys that show up, and they start teaching the church this strange message. Do you remember what it was? That you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Is this coming back to you? So it's like, all the men in the church, you have to have a surgery if you're going to be a real follower of Jesus. And all the men are like, nope, I'm out. And so this brought them into sharp dispute, the Bible says. So Paul and Barnabas, they travel to Jerusalem because they got to get some clarity on what is a false doctrine. They're teaching that the law requires you to live up to these rules in order to be a Christian. Like, no way, that's not right. But the church was all confused about this. So all the church leaders gather in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and they figure it out. And I love the letter that the church leaders send to all the Christians around the known world. You don't need to look there, but it's in Acts chapter 15 verse 24 and the church leaders write this and they say, "He said, we have heard that some have gone out from us without our authorization." In other words, that's not us. So this message is not from us. Don't believe it. And what do they say next? They have gone out without our authorization and disturbed you and troubled your minds friends that's what false teaching does it creates confusion it creates instability all the time If you want evidence today of the validity of what I'm trying to share with you, look no further than the doctrinal statements of of a number of mainline denominations today who have embraced all kinds of secular thinking into their doctrinal statements and into their vocabulary and into their practices. They don't hide it. Always creates instability and confusion. There's another danger that the Bible talks about when it comes to false teaching in the church. It causes division. That's what it does. If you think about the false teaching that I said is sweeping across the American church right now. That just says, you know, God doesn't care about who you marry or how you marry or, or the gender or anything like that. It just, all, the, all that God cares about is love. Don't ever call that sin. That false teaching that's rapidly spreading in the American church. Has that false teaching brought unity to the church or massive amounts of division to the church? It's brought massive amounts of division, hasn't it? Entire congregations have broken up. or Entire denominations have split right down the middle over this false teaching because false teaching brings division. Families, maybe even some of you right here in our church, families have been troubled and fractured and splintered because of false teaching on this particular thing. It always brings division, all the time. Paul warned the church about division that's the result of false teaching. In Romans chapter 16, it's on the screen behind me, in verse 17, he says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are what? Contrary to the teaching you have learned. So he's he's bringing a point here. Watch out for this. It's a real thing. It's contrary to the truth and it creates what? It, It causes divisions and obstacles. He says, keep away from them for such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetites. Friends, every. False teaching is born out of a personal agenda. Every time. Every time. Without fail. Every false teaching is born out of a personal agenda. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. There's a third danger of false teaching. It's this. It does lead to severe punishment. All over the pages of Scripture, the end result of leading people astray, false teaching, always leads to severe punishment. If you you were to go back and read the book of Galatians sometimes, that was a letter that Paul wrote to a number of churches that were all scattered out through the province of Galatia. These are churches he planted throughout his missionary journeys. And and he writes this letter because false teaching was creeping in to the churches. He's like, we got to get a stop to this says in verse chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes to these Christians and he says, Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But listen to what he says next. Even if we, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than what we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. That's pretty strong. If you were to read the book of 2 Peter, Peter is dealing with the same challenges of false doctrines entering the church. And Peter speaks even more directly about the punishment that is going to come to those who mislead the church. Well, I've given you the bad news. I'm going to let you read the next part, which is the good news. Because in the next part, and you're going to flesh this out in your life groups this week, is where Paul says, but there is good news, there is hope. And you know why there's hope? He says, look at me. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he says, I was the worst one that ever lived. But God saved me. And God can redeem this. And, and there is this air of hope that starts to filter into what Paul writes next about the purpose of Jesus' mission, And how he can change lives. And and he is the evidence of that. And friends, I just want you to know, it doesn't matter where you are at today or where you have been, God's not so much concerned about that as he is where you are going. And if he can redeem Paul, he can redeem you. My challenge to us as a church family right now is that we stay true to our convictions as followers of Jesus, that we stay true to God's word. That we stay true because, listen, everybody, every generation has had people that followed man-made ideas and they always fade away into non-existence. But what stands true are the unwavering words of our Lord. If we stay true to that, if we stay anchored to that, if we continue to hold Jesus in a high place and we continue to hold a high view of Scripture, we will not fail as a church. We will ultimately be successful. There is not a challenge in the world that God won't see us through if we stay true to His Word. But if we drift away from that, if we devalue Scripture, if we lower Jesus' place in the world, we will find ourselves in a whole world of trouble. A whole world of disunity. A whole heap of mess. I want to challenge this church. As we unpack this, to make a commitment that we here at New Life, we are going to be committed to sound doctrine. Later, Paul will say to Timothy, Timothy, do something for me. No matter what, watch your life and your doctrine closely so timothy you watch your life you watch how you behave and you watch your doctrine you watch what you believe very closely and you will be very successful friends that's my hope for our church i believe god can handle everything but we got to stay true to his word and i hope this has been an encouragement to you and i hope that as you unpack the rest of this chapter on your own and with your life groups you will see the hope That Paul writes in to the story of the church. Let me pray for you. Dear gracious God, I just thank you for this word, Lord. I thank you for um, inspiring Paul to record it. Lord, I pray you help us have a very clear awareness that this is not an ancient problem, but that there all the time, and I think a lot of it spurred on by the enemy, is trying to creep a falseness into the church. And I Pray, God, that you give us ears to hear what is true. That, Lord, I pray as a church family, people filled with the Holy Spirit, that you will alert us, send off the warning bells when we hear things. Maybe that's on social media or in conversations with a friend or something we hear on the radio or somebody we hear preaching, that there's an awareness, there's a, a radar, if you will, there's a, a warning sign that, that's not true, that's not my word. I pray, God, you give us that awareness. Lord, I thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who paid the ultimate price for our sins. That Lord, he went to that cross and he died there, but three days later, he rose to life so that we can live in heaven forever. Oh, Lord, we say thank you to you. Help us to stay true through troubled times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I want to thank you for being here today. I also want you to know that if anything we've read today, that we've studied, anything we've sung together, if that has sparked something in you, and you're sitting here today saying, I think I I want to follow Jesus. I want to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. I sure hope that you'll stick around for a few minutes and talk with myself or one of our elders. We're gonna be hanging out here at the front for a few minutes. And if you just wanna talk about maybe following Jesus, we'd love to visit with you. Maybe you're here today. And you would just like some special prayer. Like Maybe you're going through something. You'd like an elder of our church or one of our pastors to pray with you. We would absolutely love to do that. And I invite you to just hang out here at the front for a few minutes after we're dismissed. I thank you for your fine attention today. God bless. Have a great, great, great day. And I hope that you will come and be a part of our Sunday Night Life group if you're not connected to one. God bless.